All right, good morning. Well, y'all can be seated for just a minute. If you want to grab your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 9, I will read our passage here for us in just a moment. But that's where we're going to be this morning, Matthew chapter 9. I did not plan this with, to go in conjunction with our Sunday school, but that's just kind of how it happened. Casey and Blake went to the um, Shepherds Conference this week, and uh, so I, I was preaching and I was reading in my devotionals through Matthew and came across something that the Lord um, just kind of struck with, stuck with me, and so I thought we'd look at that this morning in, uh, in Matthew's Gospel. So I'm going to kind of set the stage for us a little bit here because these words that I'm going to read here in a moment are very familiar to us. And so at this point in time, Jesus's earthly ministry is in high gear, right? After his baptism, after his temptation, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted. He begins to call the first disciples. We see that with Peter. And in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew gives us three verbs that mark Jesus's kingdom ministry. And I'll see if you can recognize them. I'm going to read this in Matthew chapter 4. It says, And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. If you didn't catch that, it was teaching, proclaiming, and healing. And so it's no surprise then when we, we open up to chapter 5 and we have the Sermon on the Mount, the longest recorded teaching on what the kingdom ethics, what the kingdom rules are, and we go on to chapters 8 and 9, and we have this long stretch of uh, miracles that Jesus did, demonstrating that Jesus doesn't just have authority as a teacher, he has authority in and of himself, who he is. He has authority as the, as the Son of God, as God in the flesh, to heal. And so he came to teach the word of God, he came to proclaim the kingdom of God, and he came to touch people where they hurt, sickness, afflictions, and diseases. And these three are going to once again be highlighted for us here in Matthew chapter 9. But in Matthew chapter 9 and going on into chapter 10, there's something else that's added to Jesus's agenda, because you see, he's anticipating when in chapter 16 of Matthew, he's going to start preparing the disciples uh, for his departure from this earth. He's going to be killed, he's going to rise again, and he's going to go back to the Father. And so how will the kingdom expand once he returns to the Father? And so in chapter 10, Christ unveils his method for kingdom advancement. And so if you would, I hope you didn't get too comfortable, stand with me. We're going to read Matthew, I'm going to read Matthew chapter 9 beginning in verse 35 and I'm going to end in chapter 10 verse 4. So Matthew chapter 9 beginning in verse 35, I should say, sorry, says this, and Jesus went throughout all of the cities and villages teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into the harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. Praise God for his word. You may be seated. So I loved how this morning in Sunday school, we were, we were talking about the intertestamental period time. And like I said, this kind of just all lines up. And we get into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And one of Mar- uh, Matthew's greatest contributions um, to as the Gospel writer is that it, it, it serves as a link between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The question that is answered in the New Testament that could be posed as a question in the Old Testament, Psalm 84:49 says, "Lord, where is your steadfast love of old by which your faithfulness you swore to David?" In other words, how are all of the promises going to become yes and amen in Jesus? And Matthew chapter 1 tells us that Jesus came, but he was not born uh, of a man and a woman. He, he, was, he was born supernaturally of God. It also tells us uh, his genealogy as well. Matthew 1, 1 says, the genealogy of Christ, son of Abraham, son of David. God made a promise to Abraham, I will make you a father of, of many nations, And Romans tells us that we are the children by faith. Then he also made a promise to to David in 2 Samuel 7. And he said that, that, that one would sit on his throne, one of his descendants, and that he would reign, his kingdom would reign forever and ever. And the interesting thing is, is that history tells us that that didn't happen with a Jewish king, and that's actually never happened with any king. Since that promise was made, Daniel chapter 2 makes that very clear, doesn't it? That all of the kingdoms of the earth are temporary in their power and in their ruling. Daniel goes on to to say in chapter 7 that the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, his reign, his rule will be forever and ever, and that it will never be conquered, unlike all of the other kingdoms of the earth have been and will be. So Matthew for us, again, is the link between the Old Testament, which foretells, and the New Testament, which is the fulfillment of God's promise in the person and in the work of Christ. And the theme of Jesus' earthly ministry was the kingdom. It was the kingdom. Now, when we hear the word kingdom, we might think about, I don't know, Lord of the Rings or knights in shining armor and and kings and palaces, but the the Greek word for kingdom simply means rule and reign. It's a rule, it's a a ruling, it's a a reign over a territory, over a people. And uh, in Matthew, he uses the, the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, but it's the same thing. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God are the same thing. He just says kingdom of heaven out of respect for the Jews, for the respect that they had for the title, the name of God. 
because Matthew's primarily written to Jews. So this kingdom, however, getting back to the kingdom, we don't have time to really dive into it. I wish we did. But the kingdom, in one sense, is already. The kingdom is already, meaning the king has come, right? Jesus says things like the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is among you. That's because the king has come and the king has conquered our greatest enemy, He has conquered sin, he has conquered death, and he has conquered Satan. And so that means that all of those who will submit to his lordship, his sovereign rule and reigning over all things, those who will submit to him can right in here and now experience the benefits of the kingdom in their hearts and in their lives. However, as great a salvation that we have is, as great as the church is, as it's been said, the church is an outpost of the kingdom of God in enemy territory. As great as it is, we understand and we can see that all is not yet perfect, right? And so one day the king will come again and he will gather his subjects and he will judge the living and the dead. And near the end of Matthew's gospel... Jesus tells us, so he tells us a lot of things, but he tells us one thing in particular that's going to take place before he returns. And it says in Matthew 24, 14, that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony, making the peoples accountable to it, to all the nations, and then the end will come. But how are people going to hear about God as Savior before they have to face Him as judge. And that's the subject for us this morning that we see here in Matthew chapter 9. And if you're taking notes, I'm going to put this under two different headings. Is The first one is Jesus' model for kingdom ministry and His method for kingdom ministry. And so the first thing we're going to look at here in verse 35 through 36 is Jesus' model of kingdom ministry, it says that he went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. We'll stop there. So Jesus goes throughout all the villages and cities. Uh, The world, and sadly sometimes in the church too, we, we have a tendency to overlook the small for the big, right? Um, and although these words are somewhat obscure, I think in here we can see that, that Jesus has a, has a love for all people, not just people in big regions like Galilee or Jerusalem, but people in smaller regions like Nazareth, where he was from, a town that at the time probably had about 200 people. Josephus records for us that when he talks about going throughout all the cities and villages, we're, we're talking roughly 3 million people in 204 cities and villages. No wonder he needed to call 72 and the 12 and, you know. That's a lot of people to minister to. That's a lot of people to proclaim the good news to, right? But he came to do his Father's will and to show the world, even the small communities too, that, that salvation had come and what God is truly like and what he expected of them. So what did he do as he goes throughout all these cities and villages? Well, it says, as we kind of talked about before, is that he went through teaching, proclaiming, and healing. Jesus's ministry, to boil down in, in a nutshell, was one of 
words and also of deeds. So let's talk about his word ministry first. And they're, they're very closely connected. Teaching. Teaching. Didasco. It almost always refers to the teaching of the scriptures. Uh, in the synagogues, this was the norm for that time. A portion of uh, the Old Testament scriptures was read, and then it was taught to the people. The Old Testament scriptures, when you read the Gospels, are constantly on the lips of Christ. Uh, pretty cool thing, Liberty University did a study, and they concluded that one-tenth of all of Jesus' words in the Gospels were Old Testament scriptures or an allusion to the Old Testament scriptures. That's pretty incredible. I wish one-tenth of my words were scripture. <laughs> That's convicting. But Paul gave Timothy this same pattern of reading and teaching. He says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 13, Until I come, I want you to do something. I want you to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching, to didasco. And that's what we do on Sunday mornings. Uh, singing, uh, it's not, it's, uh, it's, 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 um, we don't just sing, though singing is important. Worship is important through, through song. We, don't, we, we pray, but we don't just pray because prayer is important. All these different things that we do uh, when, we, when we gather together as the church are important. They're commanded for us to do in Scripture. But one thing that we always want to do is we want to make sure that the Scripture is read and that the Scripture is taught to, uh, to us so that, we can, so that we can feed on God's Word. And so kingdom ministry involves Scripture reading and Scripture teaching. But it also involves proclaiming. It involves proclaiming. And we see that here. He says uh, proclaiming. It's a caruso. It means to herald the gospel, herald the good news of Christ with authority, and so by doing, making those who hear it accountable to it. Teaching, uh, if you will, it's been said, is, is directly geared towards or, or directed towards the, the mind, whereas, whereas, uh, whereas proclaiming or this, this proclamation is, is towards the will, Right? And we see this uh, somewhat similar in, in, in uh, the Great Commission. He says, go and make disciples. How? Well, by proclaiming the gospel. How does, uh, how does faith come? It comes through hearing, through hearing the good news of Christ, that, that God made it, that man sinned, and, and we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that Christ is the only Savior. He's the one who could redeem us. He died. He was put in a grave, and he rose by the power of God on the third day, and that he's, he's coming again. And the response to that message is for us to turn from our sins, to repent, and to put our faith and trust in Christ for salvation. That's proclamation. It's proclamation. So go and make disciples, proclamation, but you don't just stop there. It's, he also says in the Great Commission to teach them everything that I uh, have commanded you. That's to the mind, right? So one uh, is not more important than the other. We, we need both to be mature Christians. And Jesus proclaimed the good news and he taught the people. And that's what we need today in our church still, right? We need bold preaching. We need convicting preaching. We need spirit-filled preaching. 
We need men to, man to stand behind this pulpit who are themselves being sanctified, themselves being transformed by God's grace and by God's word, to stand up each week and to give God's message to God's people for their good and for God's glory. Amen? But we also need teaching. We need teaching. And that's public, right? There's a public aspect to that. It's also private. We need to be teaching one another the scriptures because we need to be growing so that we can live out the realities of the gospel in our everyday lives, so that we can remember all that we are in Christ, all that we have in Christ, and all that he wants us to be in him so that we can reflect him, right? So Jesus, uh, Jesus however, we see, it's, it's not that he just taught the people, he preached, and then he went back to his room, okay? That's what the, the religious elite of his day were, were doing. Jesus was not some distant king or distant God. He was among the people. He was with the sheep. He was approachable, and he healed them where they most deeply hurt. If you would consider with me that Jesus, as the Son of God, the sinless one, he healed the sick. He made the lame walk. He made those who couldn't speak, speak. He opened the eyes of the blind. He raised dead people back to life. He exercised demons. He cast out unclean spirits. And John's gospel says that he did a lot of other things that we don't know about. So many, to be exact, that the world could not contain the volumes that it would fill. Why did so we have to pause and ask ourselves a simple question why did Jesus do miracles? Why did Jesus do miracles? Why didn't he just teach and preach? Well, I stole this from John MacArthur and I'm going to give it to you. He gives two, I think, very compelling reasons as to why Jesus uh, had a ministry of miracles. And the first is to verify his message to verify his message so that people would believe that he was the Messiah, that he was the Savior. Jesus didn't come to change the law, but to fulfill it, right? But the problem was that the spiritual leaders of Jesus' days were not teaching the right interpretation or the right application of the Old Testament scriptures. For example, uh, some Sadducees decided to make a long trip to really just berate Jesus, but to ask him a question, in Matthew 15, 2 and 3, he said, uh, the Sadducees say, uh, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And I love his response. This is, this is great. He says, uh, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of the tradition, for your, the sake of your traditions? So because the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't live out or teach the word of God rightly, Jesus comes on the scene saying things like, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you, right? He wasn't changing it. He was teaching the right interpretation of scripture. And that would have been very shocking for people to hear. And so that is part of the reason that he was doing these miracles was to verify that what he was saying is truly from God. And the other thing we see is that 
The miracles that Jesus did were always intended to inspire faith in the people, that they would believe in him. There was always a spiritual aspect to his miracles. Jesus was not on some campaign against leprosy and disease. Um, the disciples didn't always get it right, but in one, one particular case, we see they did. So after, after Jesus comes to the disciples on the water, he walks out to him on the water. They think he's a ghost. Peter says, if it's really you, tell me to come to you. Peter comes to him. And then it says, after they both get back in the boat, in, in Matthew 13, when they had climbed back in the boat, the wind died down. And those who were there in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. That is the response that miracles should have when they were done and when we read them in the New Testament. In the Bible, Jesus' miracles verified his message. It inspired faith in people, but it was, it was, it, I think it is also important to note that John MacArthur notes, and I think it's often forgotten too, is that miracles also display the tender love of God. It displays the heart of God that Jesus touched people where they hurt and he healed them. He had compassion on them. They were oppressed and they were sick and they were in pain. Some of them had diseases for years and years and years. And some of you know what that's like. To suffer with an ailment for a long, long, long time. And he healed them. And before Jesus looks on the multitudes with compassion, it says in our text that he healed them. He healed them. And you say, it's, it's, it's profound because that's, that is personal care. That's personal, tender love. You understand that this is the same one who spoke everything into existence and with a word, with a group of people before him, with a word, could have just healed all of them. But instead, he chose to touch them. And they touched the fringe of his garment and they were healed. That was individual care, individual restoration. I sometimes wonder if part of the reason that Jesus was able to sleep through a storm, you remember that story where Jesus sleeps through a storm on the boat and the disciples are freaking out and losing it? He's just passed out in the boat because he was spent from giving himself and giving himself and giving himself. And while he was fully God, he was also fully man. And it was his attribute of compassion we were, it's not like he's like, you know, we look at a little kitten or something. We're like, oh, it's so helpless and so cute. I just feel, I so feel for it, you know. It's not like that when he looks at the crowds with compassion. This is an attribute of God. This is who God is. It flows out of the abundance of his heart. He's a compassionate God. He's compassionate. Now, we're going to talk about this word compassion, and I'm probably not going to say it right, and it's really a weird word. So let's talk about it. It's splagidsomai. That's the best I got. But it means to be moved in your bowels. To be moved in your midsection, in your gut. It's kind of strange, but it, it literally means to be so touched by something or moved by something that it, that it moves you in your midsection. And the fact of the matter is we understand this, don't we? You know? We talk about getting butterflies on our first date or whatever. 
If we might be nervous about an interview and say, oh, my stomach's what? It's in knots, right? Because I'm so nervous. You got to have a conversation with someone and it's like, oh, I know I have to, but I don't want to. And so you're, you get a stomach ache. We say, I have a bad gut feeling about this. Trust your gut. That comes from the idea that the midsection is where emotion is felt. It's where emotion is felt. And today, and probably throughout history, I don't know, I didn't live throughout history, but I could imagine, there's always gut issues. We have ulcers and ulcerative colitis and IBS and all these gut problems, right? And... uh, when the, the thing is, is, is when things bother us just beyond having a bad day here and there, we carry it in our body. And Jesus felt that. Jesus felt that. And it's a great comfort to me to know when I read things like, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. This is not coming from someone who doesn't understand. Jesus had been so worked up by something that he felt it in his stomach. He physically felt it. And while the emotions in the gut work just as God made them to, if it is left unchecked, we can have an imbalance in our lives. I think we can admit that sometimes things bother us that shouldn't, and the things that should bother us don't bother us. And we see a right example of that here. What is it that moved Jesus to this deep feeling is that he saw beyond the numbers of the crowd and he saw the individual that they were harassed and they were helpless. They were worn out. They were exhausted. They were torn down, lying prostrate without help. They were slaves to their sin. And they were spiritually dead. They were unable to come to a knowledge of the truth apart from divine grace. Do we see people that way? Do we see individuals that way? Does it bother us that there are people in our life who are alienated from God? Or do people give us Stomach pains for other reasons, (laughs) because they're a nuisance, because we're annoyed by them. God puts people in our lives so that we can show them the love of Christ, so that we could show them what God is like. Colossians 3.12 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, Humility, meekness, and patience. Or consider 1 Peter 3.8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do we see people like Jesus sees them? He also saw them, not just as helpless and harassed, but he also saw them as sheep without a shepherd. The people of Jesus' day had no good leaders who were caring for their souls and who were teaching them the word of God. They were like leaders scattered throughout the Old Testament. You have uh, Zechariah, you have uh, um, Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 23 that talks about these bad shepherds, these bad shepherds who were feeding themselves and not feeding the flock. 
And so as bleak as a lot of these passages are, there's one in particular in Ezekiel 34. Uh, it's also mentioned in Micah 5 that one day God himself will shepherd his people. And so Jesus comes and he says in John chapter 10, I am the what? I am the good shepherd who doesn't take from the sheep, doesn't use the sheep, but lays down his life for his sheep. And we still have today in this world uh, a need of good shepherds, of good under shepherds, I should say. Jesus told us, that false teachers will come in to the, into the flock and they will be wolves in sheep's clothing. What that means is they're going to look like shepherds because they have sheep's clothing on. Shepherds wear sheep's clothing. They, they're going to talk like them. They might even try to act like them. But how are we going to recognize them? We're going to recognize them by their fruit. Right? Paul saw the writing on the wall in his day as well. That from among the own ranks, there would be corrupt men who would come in and try to use the sheep for their benefit, for their power, for their pocketbook, for whatever it was, and lead them astray. And so I hope you often remember to pray for for your pastors. Because they have a tough job. It's a, it's a calling. I'm sure if they could have done something else with their lives or do something else with their lives, they would. And serve the church in another way, they would. But they can't because that's the calling that God has placed on their lives. And it's, and it's a hard one. And so we need to remember to, to pray for them, but also to be thankful for them. Because like I said, it's sad when you go to other churches that they don't have shepherds who love God and love the people and want to teach the word of God. They, they have other motives. And it's, it's real and it happens today. But something that should comfort every pastor is the fact that when we read passages like this, that Christ has a greater love for the sheep than any man or woman could ever have. And that's comforting. We see that in Acts 20 when, when Paul when Paul, uh, when Paul commends those elders in Ephesus to the Lord and to his grace, he knows that God's going to take care of them. God's going to shepherd them no matter what comes. And so we see, this, we see this model here of Christ's kingdom ministry that he, he stooped down to our level and he saw the need, he sympathized, and he met the needs of the people. Not just their physical needs, but their spiritual needs. But but we do also have to understand that Jesus didn't heal everyone. He didn't heal everyone. He came to do his Father's will. And so for 33 years before his death, Jesus only spent three years in public ministry. And that's always kind of baffled me. Um, But that was God's plan. He didn't ask me about it. But we see in those years that Jesus... He served the crowds, he healed a lot of people and did a lot of ministry, no doubt, but he really poured his life into the 12 disciples. That's where his main ministry was, was, was focused once we, once we see this in the Gospels. And, uh, and the second point we have here is, is his, his method for kingdom ministry. And we see that here in verse 37, he says, Then the disciples, 
Or then he said to the disciples, after he looks at the crowd and has compassion for them as as sheep without a shepherd is harassed and helpless, he looks at the disciples and he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And then he calls the 12 after that. So you notice that his first words after looking at the multitudes was to address the disciples about the harvest. And so before we talk about his method of kingdom ministry, uh, we should ask ourselves, what is the harvest? What is the harvest? Is it the lost? Is it the world? Is it the, the harvest in John chapter 4? Based on a study of scripture, I believe that the harvest is judgment, that he's talking about judgment here. And we don't really... Uh, have to guess. We can look at Jesus' own words, but think about it for a minute. What does a worker in the field think about as he is, as he is plowing, as he is sowing his seeds, as he's, he's making way for irrigation and all this stuff? Is he just doing it for fun, just for exercise? No, he's, he's, he's doing it with the final crop in mind that he's going to take up out of the ground, right? As he prunes, as he does all these things, he's thinking about the final crop. And so in Matthew 13... Jesus, uh, Jesus says this, Matthew 13, there's many parables about the kingdom, but in verse 30, he says, uh, then let both, meaning the wheat and the tares, grow up until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles and let them be burned, but gather the wheat into barns. And then he goes on and uh, he's got a little bit longer one here. If you want to look there, you can with me. It's in uh, Matthew 13, beginning in verse 36. He tells a par- uh, the parable explained. He says, then he left the crowds and he went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable, of the weeds of the field. And he answered them, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of the kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So don't miss this. Jesus saw the needs of the people, no doubt, their physical needs, right? He had compassion on them. But he saw to a deeper level of their spiritual need, their eternal need to be made right with a holy God. That's what they really needed. And so what is Jesus' method for advancing his kingdom with the end in mind? It's laborers, literally field workers. I love this quote from uh, the master plan of evangelism. It says, it all started by Jesus calling a few men to follow him. His concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men with whom the multitudes 
would follow. Men were to be his method of winning the world to God. Men and women were to be God's method for winning the world to God. And guess what? It still is today. So I want us to consider three things here, three exhortations for us. Number one is that I pray that you and I would allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to soften our hearts and to open our eyes to the needs around us, both temporal needs and physical needs. I love how Jesus cared for the whole person, but what moved him was not just their sickness, it was their sin. The temporary and the eternal facts of the fall. How do we gain a heart like that? How can I get a heart like that? By exposing myself often to the faith-giving word of God. By exposing myself often to the faith-giving word of God and by obedience to that word. Not just being a hearer, but being a doer. And allowing the spirit to control me instead of my flesh to control me. It's only then that we're going to prayerfully and boldly share the gospel. We're going to have a desire to share the gospel. But as we do, we should also be prepared to serve people. Hey, can I watch your kids for you? Can I help you with that project on your house? Can I give you a ride? Jesus cared for the whole person. And when he saves us, we want to do the same, right? 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, do not love in word or talk, but in what? In deed and in truth. Number two, which is the main imperative of this passage, is that we should pray for workers. We should pray for workers. Oswald Chambers rightly said that God has the key to the missionary problem. God has the key to the missionary problem. The first thing Jesus tells his disciples is not, rush out as fast as you can and tell everyone the king is here, right? It's the same thing that happens in Acts 1. He says, you go in the upper room and you pray and you seek my face, I'll send my spirit, then I'll send you. John 15 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. And then when Jesus calls the 12, Matthew doesn't record it, but Luke and Mark do. Guess what he does? He goes and he prays to the Father all night. If God needs, if Jesus needs to pray for, to the Father before he chooses the 12, how much more do we need to pray before we go? And it's interesting to me, when I read this, this struck me this time, Jesus doesn't actually tell us to pray for people, right? That's what we do. Lord, please save so-and-so. And and that's right, you know, God's got to work in their heart, draw them unto salvation, you know, John 3, they got to be born again. I understand that. But Jesus actually says, when talking about the lost, to pray for someone to go to that individual. So instead of praying, 
Lord, save so-and-so, which is fine to pray. Also pray, Lord, send someone to share the good news with so-and-so. Which brings us to number three, pray for laborers, but also be willing to be the answer to your own prayer. Jesus thrusts us in all sorts of situations, in all sorts of seasons, does he not? And for some of us, like my family, during this season, that means that we're going to go somewhere for this work. But for most of you all, that means being here and being faithful. We need to be ready to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that is in us. When Jesus, when Jesus commands the 72, he sends them out in Luke 10. He says three words I want you to walk away with. He says, go your way. Go your way. God wants to do something incredible in you and through you in your everyday life as you go your way. So as you pray for so-and-so and and someone to go to so-and-so, maybe eventually you'll start thinking, why not me? Why not me? Right? Saturate your life in the word of God. Put it always before your eyes. Put it always before your family's eyes because we're never going to share the gospel with someone. We're never going to seek to serve someone if we don't see their need. And we're never going to see their need if our hearts are not being transformed by the word of God. That's the bottom line. So as you go, be willing, be willing and ready to be the answer to your own prayer. I'll close with this. Um, at Criswell, when I was in Bible college, we ha- I had an evangelism professor named Dr. Worthington, one of the godliest men I ever knew. And I'll never forget his example, his, his own personal example of his life. He was so overtaken by God's grace to him that he shared the gospel with everyone. But especially, he had a heart for the homeless in Dallas. And he told us when he first became a Christian about how on Saturdays, he'd fill his backpack with gospel tracts and sandwiches, and he'd hit the streets. Um, and uh, I, I never have met a man who was so passionate about people and so passionate about the gospel. And it, it didn't change when he became a professor, because one day before chapel, we had chapel two days a week. One day before chapel, there was a homeless guy outside, and he was probably wanting money or something which is really not unusual because Criswell Bible College is in downtown Dallas. And so not very uncommon, but Dr. Worthington was late for chapel that day because he was out there talking to that guy. And uh, this is where it gets really crazy. We go in, we have worship. We're sitting there ready for some, you know, polished preacher to get up there and give us a sermon. And the homeless guy comes in and comes up on stage (laughs) And he begins to share with us how over the last couple years, he'd been doing this study, hanging out around churches and private schools and seminaries and stuff, just observing uh, their attitude towards the homeless. And it was pretty convicting for us and to hear what he had to say. We were pretty amazed. 
And, um, but I'll, I'll never forget Dr. Worthington. And, and he wasn't just a PhD, he actually lived it out. And a verse that I want to just end with, and I would, I would commend to you that I always keep before my mind is Revelation 7, 9. It says, in a great multitude that, that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe, every people, and every language, standing before the throne, worshiping God. That's going to be amazing. How's that going to happen? If we will follow Christ's example, his model for us, and teaching, and proclaiming the good news, and meeting the needs of the people. But also his method, which is you and I. That we would be people who would abide in him, and that we would pray, and that as we pray, we would go, and that we would make disciples. I love you all. Amen. Father, we just come before you now, and... uh, We thank you for your word, for the truth of your word, the sanctifying power of your word, how it convicts, how it comforts, how it'll never return void. Praise God for your word. Lord, I pray not that we would just go and do, but God, that we would be the kind of people who truly delight in you and truly delight in being used by you. That God, that we would pray for the lost, that we would pray for workers to reach the lost. God, that we would never forget who we were before we came to know you and who we are now in you. So God, we pray and we ask that you would do a work in us. And as you do that, God, that you would do a work through us in this community for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.